Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turned four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time. I've just been told that you really do know all about the music programs on 3CR now. This week we'll be talking to, hearing about the latest meeting of the Melanesian Spearhead Group with Louise Byrne the, from the West Papua Office in Docklands, Melbourne, where the people from Western Papua, West Papua are seeking full membership to the Melanesian Spearhead Group, much to the disgust of um, Indonesia, who's doing everything they can do to make sure they don't get in, but I think they're going to persevere and they'll get there in the end. The Timor Gap and oil, there's been a long, long battle by the Australian government to steal the, the oil from East Timor and um, change the, the boundary for, between the two countries or set up the boundary between the two countries, but it's, it's nearly been resolved. A lot's been done. There's still a little bit more to come. I'll be speaking with... Peter Murphy from the Search Foundation, but he's also a human rights and trade union activist, and also what's happening in South Africa now that Zuma has been forced to resign and Cyril Ramaphosa is the new president of South Africa. And you might remember a couple of weeks ago there was a concert at the Athenaeum Theatre here in Melbourne with Roger Waters from the group who was from the group Pink Floyd. He's now still singer and an activist for Palestine and we'll hear him speaking with Palestinian Australian activist and author Randa Abdel Fattah and Jewish Australian activist and author Anthony Lowestone at that meeting at the Ethnaeum Theatre. But first let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy. A weak journalist, and when those sinister threats to liberty, freedom and democracy, evil Russia and evil China have been in the news. Bad news. A bad news week. The opposite of good news week. It's good news week. Someone dropped a bomb somewhere, contaminating atmosphere. It's good news week. Sure, the song was ironic, but we know that if the good guys, us or our very close friends, drop a bomb somewhere and contaminate the atmosphere, that is good news. But if the bad guys, them, the other, drop a bomb, contaminate, bad news, bad, bad news. Leading us to contemplate how devious evil Russia and evil China are. See, the threat, the real threat is to the freedom bit of liberty, freedom and the freedom of capital, which is real freedom, what liberty, freedom and democracy is all about. How devious. Back in the last Cold War days, we had to hate them. They were a major threat to our way of life because they were communist commies. Now, in the present Cold War, we have to hate them. They are a major threat to our way of life because they are capitalist. How devious is that? But how stupid evil Russia. Fancy attacking a double agent in a good, good country, the good guys, with a nerve agent, quote, which can be traced straight back to. So stupid, we could almost think maybe someone wanted to make it appear that, but 
that's not the sort of devious spy versus spy subterfuge that good guys would even think of, is it? Sure, evil Russia may have done it, but the cynic in me isn't prepared to take MI6's or the CIA's word for it. The number one defender of liberty, freedom and democracy, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo man of steel, tariffs, thereby making capital a little less free for other people, Donald Trample the poor, praised True Blue Aussie as a true friend. A true friend jumps when we say jump. Good. Very good. Which makes True Blue Aussie a very, very, very true friend especially in that good news, good guy side of dropping a bomb somewhere and contaminating the atmosphere, but only for the good of the people we're liberating. Good news also in the International Women's Day front. On the positive side, the dangerous perception that IWD celebrates working women, based on nothing more historically substantial than its genesis from the struggles of working women, is being eroded by the really important women who make a major contribution to this society by generating wealth and jobs, seizing the day for themselves. Why, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review inserted a Women in Business Lift Out to Celebrate. The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin carried a double-page ad offering mentoring by one of Trublawazi's most inspiring women with a picture including the minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie bash up the workers, smiling at us inspiringly. She certainly inspires me to... No, no, I won't go there. Presumably mentoring women in the gentle art of ripping surplus value off workers. And Chloe's short and ambition took the Socialist Party position in a speech to a big funds management investment company calling for more women in company boardrooms. Other than wheeling in the tea and biscuit trolley, presumably. So let's hope in a short while IWD will be known as International Business Women's Profits Day and obviate the threat from evil women workers preaching subversion, like yesterday, still called Labor Day brackets Vic Taz SA in most calendars. And therein lies its only connection to lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions. Thankfully, providing a weekend of bread and circuses, don't mention label, let's call it Moomba, bread and circuses courtesy of the caring business class who provide wholesome entertainment like people with wingy thingies leaping into the era and allowing, indeed providing the opportunity for, the common folk to cheer the floats of the great corporates. While remember, when it was Labor Day and the march consisted of huge union floats and large union banners and worker demands, floats of the great corporates, which are most definitely not political, but labor movement floats or banners are banned on Labor Day, sorry, Mumba Day, because they are most definitely political. Compared to, International Women's Day still has a fair way to go before working women are eliminated altogether, but isn't it encouraging that the filthy rich, the great corporates, so care about women? And they believe unflinchingly in equal pay. Well, they have to, given women won equal pay back in 1972, as we've mentioned regularly. Zelda Deprano's role has been reiterated regularly since her death a couple of weeks ago. So it hasn't been an issue for 50-plus years. I've no idea why women keep carrying on about it. You, you don't hear men making a fuss over the issue. We, the 
caring employers chorus, believe absolutely in equal pay. Women doing menial work should all be paid the same menial pay. Sadly for them, for they know it's a problem, wages for women and men have fallen in real terms for the past four years. The answer, as we all know, is so simple. Remove all taxes on the filthy rich and increase their profits. The record profits they've been earning simply haven't been record enough for the workers who make a small, insignificant contribution to those profits, like 100%, to warrant a wage rise from their lazy, avaricious labours. Caring employers and the economic gurus who inform us wisely day after day what's good for us know that menial pay is better than no pay at all, better than bludging on the public purse like those textile outworkers who admittedly receive menial pay. But they can make a nice little earner if they're prepared to put in, say, a 100, 120 hour a week and avoid injury, which would be their own fault, which is why they're not covered for that injury. Why, for those sort of friendly hours, they can almost make a living wage. Which is why caring employers are so upset that the fair work, no longer work choices, just looks like it con mission has approved this national disaster. This amalgamation between the textile evil union, the maritime evil evil union and the building and construction evil 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 union. So threatening to national security, caring employers in the resource industry have urged big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull and the team to amend the legislation which allowed the amalgamation to not allow the amalgamation split infinitive. The True Blue Aussie Mines and Metals Profits Association's Workplace Relations Director, Amanda Manzini, real name, putting in her IWD Week bid for Feminist Solidarity of the Week award, said... There is a pathway for the government to act in the national interest, showing Amanda, despite her concern for those outworker slaves, is prepared to put the national interest first, if only there were more like her. Uh, but Amanda, the sundry chambers of profits always claim they oppose retrospective legislation. And we do, uh, when it applies to us, because that would be against the national interest. But it's okay when it applies to others like workers and unions. It's essential in the national interest. The national interest is our only interest. Uh, by the way, where are you from again? Uh, 3CR? Oh, listener, the reaction was so frightening I dare not describe it. Quick, quick, over here, smelling salts, over here, quick, quick. My God, what caused that? I hope she comes round. Apart from seeking retrospective legislation, the Resource Caring Employers Union is also taking legal action to stop its workers' union making its own decisions. Meanwhile, after starting with bad news, the latest Real Estate Profits Institute of Trublawazi Housing Affordability Study, good news. Housing affordability in Sydney is improving. Well, the average house price up there is a mere one point something mil, so any wonder the homeless of Sydney are dancing in their gutters. Dare we suggest the small gap, say one point something mil, between the homeless and housing affordability is about as wide as the gap between the Real Estate Properties Institute and reality? Finally, 
the socialists that threatened to wipe out handouts to great corporate shareholders who pay no tax whatever and therefore deserve a handout from other people's taxes. Handing the Modesty of the Week award to socialist would-be economic guru Chris Bowen to Capital for declaring, we have the wisdom and frankly the courage to adopt this policy. And how it must have abraded Chris's innate modesty to admit, frankly, the courage. But sadly, we quickly discovered not giving handouts to shareholders who don't pay any tax in the first place is class warfare, the politics of envy from no less reliable and respected sources as the Lord Rupert of Whopping Sin. Labor launches new class war, 11.4 billion tax grab. And the minister for something to do with the freedom of capital, Matthias Rotten Tuber, who said the evil socialists were stealing from mums and dads. Well, yes, we can be pretty sure many of those corporate shareholders who don't pay any tax at all and therefore deserve a handout from other people's taxes are mums and dads. Lord Rupert's a dad, several times over, much to the chagrin, we suspect, of his older offspring, and Matthias is a dad. But, well, we know if class warfare and the politics of envy are being waged, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition and the courageous class warrior Chris Bowender Capital would be leading the charge. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And tomorrow morning it's good morning to Kevin Healy as he presents with a few friends. City Limits, which goes to air here on 3CR, 9 o'clock, right up until 10. 3CR, digital, 3cr.org.au, if you want to listen streaming or podcasting later on. Are you doing the right thing? Marxism 18 is Australia's biggest radical left-wing conference happening March 29th to April 1st in Melbourne. The conference will feature founding editor of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sunkara, Australian writer Helen Razor, Palestinian activist Huwaida Araf, and films celebrating 50 years since the struggles of 1968. Join radicals and activists for political discussion in over 100 sessions across four days. Tickets start at $25 and are available at marxismconference.org Red Flag Press is a 3CR supporter Hoi there shipmates this is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St Kilder Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going Ah! 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 That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle and you heard first on 3CR. What more could you want after receiving a stylized shirt, a bag, a necklace, a very expensive diary, a small bottle of hair conditioner and skin moisture? Well, what the United Liberation Movement for West Papua, the ULMWP, was after was full membership of the Melanesian Spearhead Group at the meeting of the group in Port Moresby, PNG, last month. To talk about the event and what was achieved, I spoke with Louise Byrne from the West Papua office in Docklands in Melbourne. 
First, Louise, clarification of the two organisations I've just mentioned, and first the ULMWP. The ULMWP is the United Liberation Movement for West Papua. It is an elected committee or coordinating body for policy progression and dispersion outside West Papua. It's fully accountable to the major independence groups inside, i.e. the Federal Republic of West Papua, which is the office down in Melbourne, the National Coalition for the Liberation of West Papua, which is not a very big organisation at all, but still you need to envelop it, and then the National Parliament, which is a huge organisation like the federal one, and they work closely together. The coordinating body is only of people from outside who are free to move a bit more quickly and a bit more easily. It's a major effort to get people from inside, say, down to Vanuatu. It's huge. So uh, they wanted people to be able to move quickly to East Africa like Jacob's doing and, and, uh, and other places around the world. So that's the idea of the ULMWP. What about the Melanesian Spearhead Group? Well, the Melanesian Spearhead Group is an intergovernmental body formed in uh, way back. Father Walter Leany was one of the driving forces. I think in 88 was when Fiji joined. Fiji always kept out of the Melanesian Spearhead Group because a lot of Fiji is not Melanesian. A lot of Fiji is, you know, the Outer Islands. And also they had prime ministers who were interested in, or they've always been interested in, in more in the economics than the culture. This Melanesian Spearhead Group formed. It is an intergovernmental organisation and the question of West Papua's membership, well, West Papua first put a membership application in, in 2001. When they started wearing the shirts this year in Port Moresby, I thought, OK, we've won the war. A journalist, actually, Dan McGurry in Vanuatu, he wrote quite interestingly and said, Indonesia has won every battle but is losing the war. So he was sort of thinking the opposite of me, but I think we were saying the same thing. It's been a long battle. It's absolutely divided the Melanesian Spearhead Group okay, into what they call the Little Brothers and the Big Brothers, Big Brothers being Papua New Guinea and Fiji, who are also, of course, the wealthiest brothers, and the Little Brothers of Vanuatu Solomons. And then the other member of the group since the beginning have been the Kanaki of New Caledonia. As the Melanesian spearhead group developed over time, other nation states became observers, like America, like Australia, you know, all that stuff. And then in 2011, out of the blue, Indonesia was starting to really feel the heat internationally from West Papua, and they applied to become an associate member. The money being chucked around, they became an associate member. And they were spurred on to apply for that because West Papua was accepted as an, observ- you know, as an observer. To keep West Papua's application uh, you know, off the table, would, and their application has always been for a, to be a full member, and to keep it off the table, um, the Secretariat has admitted and shown papers to the, in the meetings of how much money Indonesia paid this year, which was $2 million, to keep West Papua out. The change, why PNG and Fiji, well, I don't think Fiji did change its mind. We noticed that Frank Bainimarama, the Prime Minister, actually didn't come to this MSG meeting in Port Moresby. And we have to remember that the MSG leaders have not met for two years over this issue. Rather than confront each other, 
they've just not had the meetings. <laughs> so all of a sudden, the ULMWP, which is only five, were invited to Port Moresby by the Prime Minister of Port Moresby, who was the host this year. No one quite knew why. We, we just thought, oh, well, we better get the money and get them there because this is a bit unusual. Well, you've established who the members are, who the associates are and others. What's the purpose of the group? Oh, in general, it's an intergovernmental group that meets on all sorts of issues, trade, terrorism stuff, governance, everything. What influence does it have in the, the world in general? People consult them because, I mean, PNG and Fiji and Vanuatu, however small they might look to us, and Kanaki, they are important little regional spaces, okay? PNG, I don't know how much money we give them every year just to keep them going. Look at the way France is fighting to keep New Caledonia. I mean, the fight going on up there is massive. And you look at New Caledonia and you think, why didn't, God, why would France want that? You know, why don't they just give it to them? It's hard to underestimate. I mean, Fiji is a big international tourism and economy. Vanuatu is much bigger than we think. We're sort of not totally uh, uh, knowing about Vanuatu in the way that we know about PNG because it was our trust colony for so long. So we don't feel as though we know Vanuatu as well. It was the English and the French. But, I mean, the tourism industry out there is big because they've got that sort of little bit of parlez-vous français to their culture. If you go to the south or north, I can't remember, I think it's south, all those islands down the south, I mean, you have to speak French. So it's very exotic, you know, for tourism. All little regional bodies, which actually most Australians have never heard of, like the MSG. It's only the West Papua situation here in Melbourne that we started talking about this MSG and your little sort of quip at the beginning about uh, salt. We've heard it a thousand times. No one actually knows what the MSG is. Similarly, no one knows what the ACP is. We've also been working with them. ACP is the African Caribbean Pacific Grouping. Who's ever heard of it? But it comes out of the old uh, Bandung Conference stuff. It comes out of that big Bandung Conference in 1955, that kind of anti-colonial stuff. Now, of course, it's full of a lot of questionable beings, but 89 UN member states in the ACP. So that's a massive voting block in the UN. They're negotiating right now a motion on West Papua for the UN. 89, even if you sign it, you know, you'll be getting someone from (laughs) X taking a bit of money to change its vote from Indonesia. But it's, it's a, it's a thing. It's eight, it's a block of 89. And then the Melanesian Spearhead Group. I mean, yes, they are tiny little countries, but there's four votes there, you know, which is more than us. We only got one vote. That's what we're doing, trying to get the numbers at the UN for a motion and succeeding, actually. The Papuans are really succeeding in this area, yeah. Tell me what Jakarta, Indonesia, does at a meeting like this when they've got the West Papuans sort of baying at the side. How do they control themselves or present themselves? Yes. At the meeting in Port Moresby, it was a complete shock. I've got this from Jacob. So it's right inside sort of stuff, um, and you'll never see it printed. In fact, it's never been printed that we're a full member. That's why I sent pictures of the shirts around. Everyone knows about the MSG shirts in the Pacific because it hasn't been written. It's been said that the uh, leaders discussed 
West Papua's application for full membership and referred it back to the Secretariat for Processing. That's the report. As, an, as it reports, Indonesia saying, oh, West Papua's application is dead in the water. So, you know, what do you do? So we just send the shirts around and say, well, this is what happened. Jacob went to the bureaucrats' meetings. Okay, so these are the MSG bureaucrats from all the four states. Then also, two days later, the foreign affairs ministers' meetings. And then you have the leaders' summit. So all in all, it's the MSG leaders' summit's about a week long and these different layers. So Indonesia sent a very high-powered delegation down, very high. And also uh, the drivers in the pack are actually two West Papuans, Franz Albert Yogu, who lots of Australians know, and Nick Messon. They gave up their PNG citizenship. They escaped over the border and then gave up their PNG citizenship, I think, in 2006 or eight. a huge ceremony where the president came down from Jakarta to give them Indonesian citizenship. So there's all sorts of stuff there. Lots of Indonesians from Jakarta and, and the two Papuans who sort of keep truffing around and <laughs> don't know what to do. So at the Foreign Affairs Minister's meetings, this is how it went, according to Jacob. Minister from Vanuatu said, why isn't West Papua on this agenda? And the chairman said, okay, we'll open the discussion, PNG. PNG said, oh, we don't want to speak to that one. The Secretariat chairman who was from Fiji, said, well, I need to tell you that the motion is not here because it's already in the leaders' summit agenda, which was massive. So who knows how it got there? (laughs) One of the arguments all along is that the criteria didn't allow for West Papua to come in. So there's been massive amounts of work on fixing the criteria, which was like a, um, a mission statement by a grade five, you know, <laughs> support group for growing trees, you know, before. And they've fixed that up. When the MSG um, secretary said that, well, the Indonesians just walked out and weren't seen again. What was Jacob's role overall? Was he the main West Papua one there? Oh, no, 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 all the ULMWP, the five people were there. Five. And lots of West Papuans came, all the people, there's lots of refugees. Yeah, so, I mean, they were outside, they weren't inside the meetings. Yeah, there was lots of support there, and I didn't know why none of us knew that Peter O'Neill, Prime Minister Peter O'Neill, was going to change his mind, and, and we're all still in the dark about as to why he changed his mind. Jacob says it was the churches, unqualified throughout PNG. You can imagine the pressure on PNG from Jakarta? Not only pressure, but money. Oh, God, the money. I mean, they've been, since 2006, Indonesia's been paying for the bullets and the boots and the uniforms of the PNG army and police. Uh, yeah, Indonesia has paid dearly to keep West Papua out of the Melanesian spearhead group. And they've just kind of, as Dan McGarry said, they've won every battle and, and losing the war. That's all I can sort of really say, except it's amazing for West Papua because if you remember in the terms of nation-making, there was always resistance from the OPM. Then the OPM had a big split in 1977 and there was just sort of nothing. And out of that vacuum, this idea that we can't just keep saying we're Dutch citizens looking for decolonisation, that's crazy. We need to have this understanding of us as Melanesians. So Jacob's part of that early thing. Um, So that was 1987 when the Melanesian flag went up, the 14-star thing. Out of there, that's finally 
So it's 1987 to 2017. I don't know how many years is that? 27, 30 years to get that on board and to get the Pacific people to accept it. Talk more about the gains made to get that vote in the UN. How many do you need? For any motion in the General Assembly, two-thirds. Yeah, that's a lot. What's the effort to get that? (laughs) What's happened in the last sort of 20 years is that support groups have sprung up all over the world. I mean, in London, the House of Lords is just sort of right behind Benny Wender. Yeah, he lives there. Well, who's a political prisoner and, and escaped and stuff. The European Union. See, the great thing about the African, Caribbean, Pacific, where we're, we're really working hard. You know, we've got a little office in Uganda. Our office here pays the rent on and all that sort of stuff. Their secretariat is in Brussels and they're structurally related to the EU. So there's a lot of work going on in there uh, driven by the activists in England to get more members really knowing and really strong about West Papua. Yeah, because it's on the other side of the world. But once they know, it's good because it's easier for them to to deal with things rather than Australia, you know, because we're too close to Indonesia and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, lots and lots of work, and the English activists are actually very good. What about the US? Because there's huge ties between Jakarta and the US going way back. God knows where we'll go under Trump. But one thing I do know is that businessmen don't like being screwed. And already Indonesia screwed Trump during his election. I don't know if you ever remember. It was the most amazing moment. He was uh, giving some sort of press conference. Nothing really. I can't remember. And he went off, finished it, and the cameras followed him out. And then next minute he came back with an Indonesian. And that Indonesian was Speaker of the House of Representatives think yes, and he'd just been accused by the corruption business in Indonesia with evidence of trying to bribe Freeport for four million dollars <laughs> to get their their new contract signed. Freeport took exception, I guess, to the greed of it, and filmed him and all that sort of stuff. So little Mr. Jakarta trots off to Trump. See, none of this is known at the moment and appears and thinks that that will boost his credentials as such that Freeport will back off from going further with whatever they were threatening to do and the rest of the people in the parliament will um, be so overwhelmed that he's standing next to Trump. You know. The usual Indonesian crap. He was actually, what do you call it, kicked out, expelled. But within six months was back. And at the same time, Trump's business deals in Bali... <laughs> were signed. Who knows with Trump where we'll end up in the in the US. So we'll be looking to Congress and all that sort of stuff. And Congress is useless because they just keep like selling arms to you know Indonesia. They've just sold another lot of aeroplanes or something. America's always tricky. And especially now that China fighting with America, it's probably up to the West Papuans. If they go to the Chinese, which they might or the Russians, you know, who knows? You just don't know what they'll do because they've been ignored for so long. And you're not likely to get the Australian government to do anything because you think about Timor and you think they're drags screaming into supporting East Timor right at the end when they were being massacred in 1999. Mm. They're not going to do anything for the West Papuans. They've done nothing for them so far. No. Do do any of the West Papuans living in Australia have citizenship? Yes, most Mm. of them. They do. 
Yeah, no, it's a, it's a shame that Australia doesn't speak more clearly. Lots of Australians have shares in Freeport. Andrew Denton was trying for ages to sort of get something happening on the on the shareholders kind of thing. Also, that Cairns, isn't it, where they supply Freeport from Presumably, Cairns? that used to be the case, yeah. and um, presume that's still the case. I should catch up on Freeport stuff. We need another academic to do a bit more study to update us. You know, there was some early stuff in the in 2000 and 2001 by the Mining Institute in Sydney and great studies, you know. But things have changed, so I don't really know what's happening there. How easy or difficult is it to get information out of West Papua this time? It's really easy to get superficial reports. It's sort of the same around the world, these kind of little short factual sort of things and no investigative or analytical columns. So it's not hard to get stuff out because everyone's got these mobiles um, and they just text it out and all that sort of stuff. For really deep analytical stuff, even in the Pacific, I mean, this Dan McGurry, I read it and I thought, oh, my God, this is the first guy who's actually just gone beyond saying, well, the MSG met this week and the Papuans came sort of thing and, and the Indonesians are dogs. You know, that's how the Pacific writes about them. <laughs> And so you say, oh, God. Yes, it's not hard to get that level out. But the journalist, I mean, it was only last week that the BBC journalist, the BBC uh, representative in Asia or in Indonesia was kicked out. She was had permission because you still have to get a visa to go to West Papua, even if you're living in Jakarta. And she had permission to go uh, with the army down to these malnourished children in um, North of Asmat, starving, measles, living in trees, the whole bit. And she had been the Indonesia correspondent for 12 years, so she knows about stuff. She didn't really go in blazing and saying this. And she was uh, expelled for hurting the Indonesian uh, soldiers' feelings. What she did was she took a photo of the boat, that it, the army boat that had pulled up, with the boxes carrying off and full of super me. And she just said, this, these are the boxes of super me the army's giving the West Papuan children instead of protein and stuff. And it was only a tweet. So that you can't report from there still unless you're just doing the Indonesian line. How free are their mobile phones? They get cut off, yeah, quite regularly. Yeah, they can get out, but like I know they also get cut off as well because I know from Jacob at home. All of a sudden you can't get the phone. Anyone getting out? Students are still coming. Students of what? University. To study here? Yeah. There's a very good governor in West Papua. He's from the Highlands. He's the best governor. And he just keeps spending all the money sending students all around the world. Because all the money's... <laughs> then the other day he opened up a health clinic in a little for you know. The Indonesians hated him to start with, but they sort of got used to him, I think. I don't know if his life is still at risk. We used to say, oh, my God, I wish he'd shut up. He'll be shot next. But he hasn't been. There's some cloud following him around protecting him. And so he sends students here. But they don't make themselves known at the office or at, at, uh, to Jacob because they lose their scholarship because it is Indonesian money, even though the West Papuans say it's theirs. <laughs> you have a, an event, open day on the 8th of April? Ah, yes, down at the office. This is our open day for our Rent Collective members, but other people are invited to come as well to our beautiful five-star office in Docklands. So we have these, we call them our shareholder days, three times a year, and we always try and get a really good speaker. So this 
Open Day, which is on Sunday the 8th of April. Dr. Eben Kurtzie is coming. He's actually American, but now a deacon. And so he's he's very experienced in West Papua, who went there when he was uh, doing his own research into how indigenous communities survive with food and stuff, and was confronted, uh, became unwittingly a, a witness to the Biak massacre. Since then, he's testified before the US House of Representatives hearing, which was organised in 2010, and it was called Crimes Against Humanity, When Will Indonesia's Military Be Held Accountable? And he's also testified before the Biak Citizens Tribunal in Sydney in 2013. So he's kept up, although he's more into lively, multi-species communities, he, he manages to put his biological science studies into the context of the people are part of the the biology of a place and and the environment of a place. So, for instance, his latest work is called Lively Multi-Species Communities, Deadly Racial Assemblages and the Promise of Justice. So he manages to, I think we become part of the animal world or the animal world is part of our world and we're all suffering because of the lack of justice in West Papua. So that's his kind of thesis. So I think it'll be very interesting. Some people would call it holistic. I, I don't think he would. He's not from that realm of thinking. He's uh, a pretty hardcore scholar, really. Yeah. Uh, it's on Sunday, the 8th of April. And so if you come early, as usual, at 1pm, you have a nice Papuan lunch by our Papua kitchen experts. And uh, then he'll be on at 2 down at Docklands Lifestyle Building at 838 Collins Street in Docklands. And that was Louise Byrne from the office in Docklands, 838 Collins Street in Docklands. That's the extension of Collins Street. I'll just reiterate about um, Dr Eben Kirksey. His introduction to West Papua was brutal, witnessing the Biak massacre in 1998 while researching the subsistence qualities of Indigenous Communities. In 2008, he co-published Criminal Collaborations about the Indonesian military involvement in the murder of two Americans near the Freeport Mine. And in 2010, he testified before the US House of Representatives hearing Crimes Against Humanity, When Will Indonesian's Military Be Held Accountable for Deliberate and Systematic Abuses in West Papua and again in Sydney in 2013 he testified before the BIAC Citizens Tribunal. So that's the 8th of April, it's a Sunday, the lunch is at 12, the talk is at 2 and then after that wild Timor coffee and biscuits and that's your lot. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. 
Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice and add your voice to the call for change to refugee policy. Demand Australia's political leaders to abandon the current harsh and unjust policies and provide permanent protection for refugees. Stand with people from all over Melbourne. Demand the evacuation of Manus and Nauru and end the cruelty. Meet at the State Library of Victoria on the 25th of March at 1.30pm. Palm Sunday Walk for Justice is a 3CR supporter. One of Melbourne's longest-running hospitals, St Vincent's Hospital, is turning 125. They're calling on community to help rising funds. To support the vital work of the hospital by participating in a pyjama-themed fun run. On Sunday, April 15th at Princess Park in Carlton North. Registrations are now open. For more information, head to stvincentsfunrun.org.au. St Vincent's is a 3CR supporter. Referring to the Maritime Border Treaty signed between Australia and Timor-Leste at the UN headquarters in New York last month over the $40 billion Greater Sunrise Gas Field, one commentator wrote, and I quote, At long last, Australia has done something like the right thing by Timor-Leste in the dispute over the maritime boundaries the countries share but it has done so only after trying every other alternative for nearly five decades, unquote. And they're talking about the negotiations. I'm speaking with Peter Murphy, trade union and human rights activist. Do you agree with that, Peter? Well, I think it is a very welcome outcome of the process that uh, started with the, the tribunal uh, at the International Court of Justice, a sort of uh, compulsory conciliation process and um, it seems to me that uh, the crucial factor in uh, the change of Australia's attitude to the seabed boundary with Timor-Leste has been uh, the backwash from the dispute about the Chinese uh, little uh, island constructions in the South China Sea. Can you explain that a bit further? So again, under the uh, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, there was a ruling that uh, the Chinese claim to virtually all of the South China Sea was wrong in law and that uh, had no basis and that I'm not sure how many other countries are involved there but about five other countries with territorial waters in, and economic zones in the South China Sea should have their rights respected. And uh, China decided to ignore that uh, and the US decided to, of course, keep, maintain the pressure on them about the, the legal standing of their claim. But then when they looked at the Timor Sea, they could see that Australia was refusing to accept the jurisdiction even of the International Court of Justice in relation to the law of the sea. So it was an, you know, a clear weakness in the side of the US and its allies that they, they had one rule for China and one rule for Australia. Well, as it stands now, what's in it for Timor? Well, I think that uh, at one level it's uh, really important that they feel that the border between Australia and Timor-Leste is, is respectful of their basic rights as a people. So it's a fairly profound level here that's been uh, struck properly 
and that is that uh, there is a, a genuine respect now in the law by Australia for the rights of the Timorese people. So that's a very important uh, concern of the people and it's, uh, it's palpable when you see images from uh, Dili in this last 10 days or so that uh, uh, that's what they feel. Then there's another dimension, of course, to, to do with the resources at the seabed level. In relation to the um, Greater Sunrise gas field, which also has some petroleum uh, in it, there's an ongoing unhappiness between the, I think, most of the people in Timor-Leste and Australia about how the revenue from that uh, field would be distributed between the two countries. So there's, there's two issues here. One is the uh, royalty, that is that the, the basic resource belongs to the peoples and just how much belongs to the people of Timor-Leste and the people of Australia and perhaps even the people of Indonesia is, uh, is what's still not really settled. So Australia, in this agreement which has been signed, Australia has offered uh, a division of the revenues from royalties uh, of 80% for Timor-Leste and 20% for Australia if the gas is processed in Darwin and 70-30 uh, if it's processed onshore in on the south coast of Timor-Leste. So uh, I think the people, um, it's hard to know, this will be a political issue in the elections coming up in, in Timor-Leste to some extent. It's hard to know really how much the people are really agitated about that particular angle um, because the, a uh, petroleum industrialisation on the south coast is, is somewhat controversial in itself among the people. Um, but it seems that um, the Timorese leader, Shanata Gusmao, is very much insistent on the onshore processing in Timor-Leste and that Australia, the Australian government and, and clearly Woodside and other partners in the uh, field want it processed in Australia. Can you explain why uh, the Timorese believe it's controversial? Well, I think uh, in Timor-Leste is an agricultural country with virtually no industrialisation. So we all know that um, petroleum is a, really a highly polluting industry and uh, besides the greenhouse gas and all that uh, side of it, which is important, the actual polluting of, of ground, uh, of land, of groundwater and so on that, that can happen, it always seems to happen with uh, oil refineries, gas processing plants and so on is, is a, quite a shocking sort of development you know, for people who have never had that in their territory before. So, um, you know, that, that's, there's so these arguments between uh, people, you know, talking about the best form of development for Timor-Leste, that this may not be the best thing or it may be a big waste of money just on economic grounds, not only on environmental grounds. And, uh, and on the other side, there's the argument that, uh, you know, Timor should have some industrial base and that this is a clearly you know, a um, upstream uh, development based on a resource which they own and therefore it makes a lot of sense to, to try to further process the petroleum product um, in Timor-Leste before it's consumed somewhere else in the world. Where would the money come from to build the infrastructure? Well, I think some of the money is already being invested directly from the budget of Timor-Leste and that budget is, you know, not in... 95%, I think, uh, coming from other oil and gas fields in the Timor Sea. 
at the moment, but those those fields are being exhausted in the next three, four years or so. So um, the Timorese people have put some money into it, not, you know, in our terms a lot of money, but for them hundreds of millions of dollars is a significant investment. And um, because it's an uh, industrial development thing, uh, it certainly could be financed partly by borrowing against the earnings of the industry. So that's, that's obviously a, a normal part of financing something like this kind of big-scale industrial investment. And would it be skilling of the local people or would people be brought in from outside? Well, again, I think this is a negotiable thing which has been much talked about and clearly one of the objectives of the Timorese uh, government in this is to develop the skills of their own people. So even now in the offshore oil industry in, in, in the Timor Sea, there's agreements about how many Timorese and uh, the training of Timorese workers on, on the uh, platforms and the supply vessels. And um, So that I've personally met engineers who've um, been trained and now working in the industry because this has been, you know, we're now in 2018 and independence came in uh, 2002. So that's 16 years and there's been plenty of time for people to get, go off and get engineering degrees and, and get work experience and, and also other levels of skill uh, required in the industry. So it's, it's already happening and I think that uh, Timorese could really do that. You know, but on the other hand, you'd have to also recognise that there would be you know, uh, expatriate labour from other countries, US, Canada, Australia, wherever. From what you know, how would you assess the role of Gujmel in these negotiations? Well, it's been a very secretive process. Uh, in fact, Jan, so he left Timor in September last year and uh, he only arrived back in Timor yesterday or the day before. Um, he had a sort of hero's welcome at the airport um, because of the signing of the Seabed uh, Boundary Treaty. But a lot of people in Timor were mystified by why you know, he had to stay out of the country for you know, so, so many months. It's almost six months, I think to do these negotiations, whereas, in fact, you know, they had been going on before, uh, for almost a year before, and um, he had been mostly inside Timor and, of course, had campaigned in an election uh, last year and so on. So uh, I think that uh, there's been some kind of uh, odd dynamics behind the negotiations. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, even now, there's still some more details of the agreement to be made public as if um, they're not really finalised. This is in relation to the greater sunrise. So I think uh, there's been a timing thing going on here where where the elections last year didn't turn out uh, satisfactorily for Shanana Gushmao and uh, he he has undermined the government which initially he, he agreed should go ahead and uh, that's why there's now another election scheduled for May 12, four years early. So um, that the fact that we're having an election is, is somehow connected to uh, his ambition and uh, his sense of his role in the history of the country and, and, of course, what he could deliver in terms of this seabed boundary treaty and the Greater Sunrise. So I think probably what will happen now is the election uh, campaigning will start in um, just after Easter and uh, go through till May 9. And uh, it's uh, likely to have, have this uh, 
little aspect or big aspect of uh, Shananagush Mao saying he's the only person who can get the oil industry on, uh, onto the south coast of Timor-Leste in a vote for CNRT. And, and he would be hoping to get a majority and therefore be able to be the Prime Minister again uh, or to nominate a Prime Minister that would do what he wanted, I guess. So, um, you know, this, this is the, um, I think, the, the political dimension of what's taken place. Perhaps he might find life a little bit tame in Timor after six months in Europe? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly where he stayed. Uh, it wasn't all in Europe, I don't think. But uh, yeah, he, I think he's been visiting in China and, and a few other places. But uh, all the same, I think, uh, you know, his uh, persona and his place in history is really totally uh, embedded in Timor-Leste. And, uh, you know, he, it's hard to know how, how another government led by him would, would operate. Um, the... Um, you know, he, he resigned in February 2015 from the Prime Ministership, more or less, you know, admitting that he'd failed to overcome corruption and, and to you know, administer the, the government properly. So um, I think there's, you know, plenty of people will be asking themselves, well, what, what's changed now? And what, would, what do you really want to do now? So, um, yes, it's, it's one of those things where... At the time, people said, you know, Mr. Gushmau always has, you know, not only Plan A or Plan B, you know, but Plan C and Plan D, and uh, you don't know which plan is really the one. And uh, it seems, unfortunately, that um, the things he said in 2015 uh, and even in 2017, you know, they weren't really the plan. So uh, something else is coming. And when you look at the Australian side of it, the the role of successive Australian government has been less than honourable? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think uh, the speech given by our foreign minister at the signing in New York uh, was notable for its uh, lack of sense of, uh, you know, humility and uh, regret uh, for the actual behaviour of the Australian government over all these years. So, um, you know, uh, sometimes people don't want to look back and, and admit to those things. But I, I do think from from our point of view as Australians, we need to say at last uh, a, a great wrong has been righted and uh, that we're sorry about what happened. But uh, again, we're not really quite getting that from our government. So I think that, that also shows from the Australian side political agendas uh, at work, which, which are to do really with Woodside and uh, more broadly the oil industry but really, I think, the Woodside Corporation. Talk about Woodside. What is their role now? Well, they're the principal uh, partner in, those, uh, consor- in the consortium which has you know, explored and uh, defined the Greater Sunrise field, and they've got the licence so far to go ahead and uh, be the ones who develop it. You know, so they've got a huge interest in, you know, I suppose, a, an orderly and um, efficient bringing on of production from that field and uh, you know we, we, we're in a, a global petroleum market which has been um, quite uh, transformed by the shale gas production and, and even oil production uh, being boosted in North, North America the United States so the market is, is not that predictable and prices have not been that predictable so but on the other hand at companies like uh, Woodside they have defined reserves and they, they want to develop them in an orderly and profitable way. 
So, you know, they, they probably just have decided that it's right now to resolve this issue about greater sunrise and, and get the schedule in place to, to develop the field. Well, they haven't quite got there yet, but um, they're much closer now with the, with the actual boundary being defined, settled, and uh, at least a na great narrowing of the range of um, out possible outcomes from the development of the field. It is very important, I think, to point out that under the previous agreement, I think which was signed in January 2006, the, the Timorese government had achieved a 50-50 split of revenues from Greater Sunrise as against an initial proposal from Australia that they only receive 18%. Uh, so, so from 18% to 50% to at least 70 if not 80% you know, is, is a really important uh, achievement by the Timorese side in the negotiations. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with trade union and human rights activist Peter Murphy and he's just been talking about the oil issue in Timor versus Australia. Peter, moving on to South Africa, in mid-February, Jacob Zuma, the president of South Africa, finally succumbed to his party's order to resign nine years tainted by reports of corruption and scandal. He should have been recalled years ago. But would you agree that the rot set in long before him? Oh, yes, I think so. I think uh, Jacob Zuma was able to become the president of South Africa because of huge disappointment in the previous presidency of Thabo Mbeki. Uh, so uh, there was already disillusionment with the Mbeki government on several levels and we're talking now about the period of 2007, 8, 9 so um, you know it's, it's a whole presidential term has passed and uh, the uh, the wheels come full full circle now and the same thing that Jacob Zuma organised on Thabo Mbeki has now been organised on him so when you look at Thabo Mbeki's period, you know, he became the president at the end of the 20th century uh, when Nelson Mandela stood down and after one term and uh, he, he became the, the president, I think, in 1999. There was already turbulence even around Mandela um, because of uh, alleged uh, corrupt payments in arms sales or arms purchases by South Africa from France. And uh, I think this continued... Um, under Mbeki with other arms deals. And uh, even in the um, Mandela one, Mandela, uh, Jacob Zuma and Thabo Mbeki were alleged to all, have all received payments from uh, France that they did uh, different things with. So, um, you know, that was a sort of a, the headline problem, I think, for them. But uh, under President Mbeki, there was also a very strange... Um, policy towards the HIV epidemic and uh, really people at the, at the community level in, in the professions were aghast at the maladministration in the health sector under Thabo Mbeki. And then there was a huge struggle really within the ANC alliance about the economic program of the government. So and this goes back to Mandela's presidency that uh, the uh, acceptance of a neoliberal framework for the, you know, you put in, in inverted commas, the development of, of South Africa 
was a, was a big uh, problem, to say the least, and uh, the privatisations of uh, many, many public assets and uh, services uh, under that policy, uh, combined with the idea that you know, government should be small and the maximum freedom given to corporations, meant that the uh, economic justice promised in the, in the uh, defeat of apartheid really was delivered at a minimal sort of level, if at all. So, uh, in fact, people even today are saying inequality is worse uh, in South Africa now than it was 20 years ago. You know, some of the problems go back to, to the Mandela presidency. And then uh, Thabo Mbeki was a much more fulsome and perhaps uh, less critical thinker about these things than, than Mandela. And uh, the conflicts about privatisation really were intense in the first three or four years of the 20th, 21st century and uh, the union movement sort of fought the government to a standstill. So all of this really led to a huge you know, disappointment among the ordinary people, uh, even inside the ANC with uh, Becky's presidency. And uh, the you know, good times really, uh, alleged good times, whatever they were, came to an end with the global financial crisis and uh, sort of the sense of... Uh, South Africa's economy being a basket case, I think, has been, um, you know, really, um, you know, obvious since um, since the 2008-9 financial year and the turn that happened then. So um, Zuma, he was presiding over somewhat of a corrective. He he certainly stopped the uh, privatisation program. In fact, and Becky was forced to stop that. But but Zuma, it's been well documented now, was somehow or other captured by uh, the Gupta family and other corporations to, to a, a gross degree so that um, it became so obvious to many people in the government, in the ANC and in the public that there was huge corruption going on, not just for Jacob Zuma's own personal wealth, but really for the personal wealth of these private interests who just uh, bribed their way through the government and really almost took it, well, you could say it's arguable they took over the government under Jacob Zuma. So uh, yeah, it's a sort of sad story, but I, th I think instead of focusing on the, the, the personalities and the whether people were really evil or good or, you know, stupid or smart, um, it's better to, to look at the deeper policies that that were more, more or less forced on South Africa after the overcoming of apartheid. So I think really from, from 1995, I think uh, President Mandela went to Davos, you know, at the World Economic Forum, and, and the capitalists there, which is late January that year, just told him that they wouldn't be investing in South Africa if he proceeded with the Reconstruction and Development Program, which was more or less a government-led development program. So, so he accepted that and uh, came back and told, told people, well, we have to do something else here along the lines of neoliberalism and, and because of his stature and the fragile situation then he he was able to convince the ANC to go that way with a lot of grumbling and a lot of resistance but, but not open conflict and um, I think you can just see that the problems got bigger and bigger as that outlook or that basic policy direction flowed through. And the future under Cyril Ramaphosa? Yeah, well, I think uh, it'll be very hard for uh, President Ramaphosa to turn the ship around. You know, it's a titanic 
type of scenario, um, they clearly it's like make or break for the ANC um, under the new president. Uh, he was um, really the obvious successor to Nelson Mandela once Chris Harney had been assassinated. And uh, he was, you know, a union leader and uh, a um, real leader of the mass democratic movement in the very last phase of the anti-apartheid struggle. So um, perhaps seen as too much of a uh, socialist, too much of a uh, unionist. And uh, again, I think to do with this is to do with Mandela's choice about, you know, which way they take the country in economic terms. Um, Thabo and Becky was then favoured, and Cyril Ramaphosa, which I think is very ironic, uh, was ordered to become a um, black empowerment capitalist and, and directed to start, you know, take, doing the economic initiatives in the private sector to create a, a black uh, managerial layer and a black, you know, capitalist uh, grouping, which uh, you know has meant that he as the decades have passed. His his own um, image has, you know, quite changed, and uh, it's routine to point out that, that he's so wealthy and that he's involved with um, these really big companies. So, uh, you know, it's it, it's it is hard to know. Like 25 years later, whether Cyril Ramaphosa is really still inspired by his trade union and mass struggle uh, experiences or not. But I, I tend to give him the benefit of the doubt, and that's definitely what the um, ANC's uh, conference uh, did in December. So, um, he, and, and now he he had to work very hard, I think, to convince uh, Jacob Zuma to stand down, but he did succeed in, in that. Uh, and now it's going to be a testing time. I would say, you know, 2018 is the testing time for Cyril Ramaphosa, and then there's an election due next year, and uh, that will be the testing time for the ANC. And you've been listening to Peter Murphy, trade union and human rights activist, speaking first about East Timor and Australia and oil and boundaries, and then about the situation in South Africa. If you want to, or if you know someone who would like to hear this program, it doesn't get the chance to hear it between 4 and 6 on Tuesday, if you, they go to 3cr.org.au, you can podcast. It goes up on the podcast in a couple of days' time, or also you can listen streaming for a whole week. Each week the program goes streaming, and then it turns into the next week's program. Or you could be just listening on your radio, which I know a lot of people still do. The old analogue, 3CR, 855 AM. I know people have still got the old radios or the newer radios, digital 3CR. Three CR is participating in an international broadcasting event. From the eleventh to the fifteenth of March, to commemorate the Fukushima nuclear plant accident, I, Jim Petit, invite you to be a part of an international broadcast happening. This is a musical prayer for the effects of the nuclear heritage on our past and present lives based on the requiem I've recorded with the Bratislava Symphony Orchestra. After listening to the piece, I invite you to take a picture of your eyes to contribute to the visual and sound artwork in progress. 
I look forward to your contribution. Tune in to 3CR, 5 p.m. Sunday, the 11th of March, and 8.30 p.m. Wednesday, 14th of March. Post-Nuclear Requiem. Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice and add your voice to the call for change to refugee policy. Demand Australia's political leaders to abandon the current harsh and unjust policies and provide permanent protection for refugees. Stand with people from all over Melbourne. Demand the evacuation of Manus and Nauru and end the cruelty. Meet at the State Library of Victoria on the 25th of March at 1.30pm. Palm Sunday Walk for Justice is a 3CR supporter. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has a specially arranged security force. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Marxism 18 is Australia's biggest radical left-wing conference, happening March 29th to April 1st in Melbourne. The conference will feature founding editor of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sunkara, Australian writer Helen Razor, Palestinian activist Huwaida Araf, and films celebrating 50 years since the struggles of 1968. Join radicals and activists for political discussion in over 100 sessions across four days. Tickets start at $25 and are available at marxismconference.org. Red Flag Press is a 3CR supporter. Some of those listening would have attended the Melbourne event on the 9th of February at the Athenaeum Theatre. An evening with Pink Floyd icon Roger Waters, a strong supporter of Palestine human rights and in Australia for his Us and Them music tour. For those who missed the event, what follows is an edited version of his conversations with award-winning Palestine-Australian author and activist Randa Abdel-Fattah and Jewish-Australian author and activist Anthony Lowestein. On the evening, Randa asked Roger the first question, and it was, You visited Israel in 2006 for your Dark Side of the Moon tour. After that tour, your views changed. What did you know about the issue before you went? Before 2006, precious little. My father was greatly concerned at all the land being bought up around Jerusalem in the 30s. 
When he finished his teacher training in England, he brushed off and got a job at St. George's School in Jerusalem. And he wrote letters to my grandmother from there, which I've still got. I've also got Christmas cards that his pupils, with pictures of the River Jordan, you know, to Mr. Waters, Happy Christmas, blah, 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 from Khaled, somebody or other. But, you know, in 1948, I was a bit too young. I know I'm incredibly old, but even, <laughs> even so, I was only five or something. I was too young to really pay much attention to the Zionist movement and what was happening and the Nakba. An awful lot happened in the intervening years between 1948 and 2006. But politically, I was engaged in the Young Socialists in Cambridge, where I grew up, and also in, the, in CND, which was a kind of a big deal. But in all of that time, the absorbed narrative was of sort of brawny, healthy Jewish men and women with their kibbutzes and, and whatever and creating a new life after the Second World War and after the Holocaust and so on. So the Palestinian narrative was entirely absent from my life and must have remained so until quite recently, although we had the Six-Day War, and obviously, in 67. And, um, but even that, the, the Six-Day War narrative was delivered completely wrong. The narrative that I got, even through the Manchester Guardian or the News Chronicle or whatever paper my mother started taking when she stopped buying the Daily Worker, was these lovely farmers on these kibbutzes who building this new wonderful world uh, for everybody had been viciously attacked by their Arab neighbours and had heroically defended themselves which of course is not what happened at all as I now know but nobody knew so we did we had a gig put on in Tel Aviv in Haikon Park put on to the end of my dark side of the moon tour and, and of course I was immediately inundated with letters and emails from people including from Omar Barghouti who's since I know Omar very well now. Mm. I started to have long conversations with everybody who was writing to me. I differ in that way from Tom York, who doesn't answer any of the letters or talk to anybody. I came to a compromise solution with Omar and everybody else, uh, which was that I did cancel my gig in Tel Aviv, and I moved it to a village called Nevis Shalom, or Wahat Asalam, which is a peace village halfway between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Uh, where they grow chickpeas and where it's kind of experimenting. Let's see if um, Muslims and Christians and Jewish people can live together and do something useful like making hummus. <laughs> and whether while they're doing that, their children can all go to the same school and all have the equal rights, at least within the context of that small community. And so we did a gig there. I think it's the biggest gig there's ever been in Israel. There were 55,000 people came. It all went swimmingly. There was a lot of, yeah, which is fine. I've got nothing against that. Uh, until the end of the gig, when I stood up and I sort of um, vaguely waved my finger around and said, you are the generation of young Israelis to whom has fallen the task of making peace with your neighbours and figuring all this bullshit out and doing something proper about it and giving everybody equal rights and so on and so on and so forth. And they went from, ah, to... 
What's he talking about? There we go. You know, because it, it was complete, it was like I was talking Swahili or something. There, they, suddenly these 55,000 young Israelis, I might as well have been from Mars. They had no idea what I was talking about. And I had that experience a number of times in Israel, trying to talk to people then, in the, in the early 2000s. The shutdown is so complete and so pernicious and so disturbing that I decided to go back the next year, which I did at the invitation of UNRWA, who looked after me. The United Nations looked after us, and we went all over the West Bank. Didn't go to Gaza, I'm sad to say, but we went everywhere else. I saw with my own eyes the operation of the apartheid system that is the occupation of everywhere that wasn't called Israel in 1948. And so that was the beginning of my story, and I'll stop now, otherwise we'll get to <laughs> nine o'clock and there won't be time for my jokes. <laughs> for most people in this audience, some people will know and some won't know, but it's been an occupation of the West Bank and Gaza for over 50 years. It's now arguably permanent. We have a US administration that gives Israel pretty much what it wants, which is not dissimilar to the previous administration. How do you explain what is happening in Israel-Palestine today? I know you haven't been there for a number of years, but you know the situation, you read about the situation. How do you explain to people who maybe don't know exactly what's happening, what is happening? Well, the devil of the peace, obviously, is the United States of America, because they're the ones who are supporting this colonialist movement for reasons of their own. I've kind of looked into what those reasons might be. They seem to reside largely within the far-right, proto-fascist, evangelical Christian community that is called the Bible Belt in the United States. The current Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, is one of them. And they yearn for Armageddon. They are desperate for the end of times. They believe that the Bible tells the literal truth of history. This is wacky stuff, but it is, it is current. I know we can laugh, and it is, it's hysterically funny, or it would be, if they weren't going to kill us all. They'll kill everybody on the planet in order to fulfill the prophecies that they believe to be their God-given literature. They're pro-Zionist but anti-Semitic at the same time, a lot of... All well, yeah, yeah, all the Jews are going to die. Yeah. You know, this, is what they, this, is, this is one of the weird, weird things about uh, misunderstandings mm. about Christian Zionism. Your question is actually broader than that, I think, mm. because what's interesting about Israel-Palestine, I mean, to me, sort of academically, I mean, I do care about it passionately, but I don't have to live there. I'm not a Palestinian. I don't have, get my door kicked in every night by whoever wants to. Well, maybe they can now. In the, in the States now, they can take me off in the middle of the night and lock me up forever with no recourse to the law. But in Palestine, this happens to people mm. constantly, and even to children, as we've seen recently, mm. with Ahit Tamimi and many, many similar cases. So it demands for anybody with an IQ above room temperature to say, <laughs> hang on a minute, what about 
Magna Carta? What about habeas corpus? What about the rule of law? What about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? What about the French Revolution? What about the Enlightenment? What's been happening the last two, three hundred years? Do we believe in law or not? Do we consider that human beings, individual human beings have rights? This is what the, they figured out in the 18th century in France, is that it's not just the king. It's not just Louis XVI who has rights under God. The sans-culottes have rights as well. You know, the poor people have rights. That's something... That's what I, I believe, that that is true. And I'm glad I was born after all of that thinking had taken place a couple of hundred years ago. But Donald Trump, obviously, hasn't... Nobody's banged on his door and said, Oi, Donald, human rights, man. You know, inalienable rights. We're all the same. We're all human beings. Paris, 1948... He has no idea. You might as well be talking to a chair. <laughs> it, I'm, you know, it's funny, but it's, it's not funny. Because um, after they've bombed Iran back to the Stone Age, which they're absolutely determined to do, at the behest of the proto-fascist government of Israel, largely, who seems to be the tail wagging the dog of Congress and, uh, you know, and the government of the United States, when they bombed Iran back to the Stone Age, they're going to attack Russia. I mean, has Donald Trump any idea who the Russians are? And how many of them there are? And how big Russia is? Just because the United States spends more money than the next eight countries on their military budget, than the next eight countries put together, doesn't mean that these people are defenseless. And also, there is a lesson to be learned from the resolve of the Russian people and what happened in the Second World War, which the Russian people won. That's why we're all free. That's why I'm not wandering around in an SS uniform, having been brainwashed, you know. Again, that might not have happened. Though, there is a little poem that I wrote. Well, it's not a poem, but... It's the beginning of a movie that I made a few years ago with a bunch of songs from a show. And it's, it starts off with a young bloke who's supposed to be me typing. And it goes, um, I remember one time my mother saying to me, of course, darling, if the Germans had won the war, they'd have killed me because I was communist, but they would have probably brought you up as a good little Nazi because I would have only been a year old or something. Mm. Which is scary, because if you get children young enough, it unfortunately is easy to indoctrinate people to believe almost anything you want them to believe. I'm really fascinated about how human beings, you know, when injustice and, and the sort of the atrocities are so in such close proximity to them, cannot be denied, are able to still live in a bubble. And I think that you encounter that when you um, went and met with Israelis, particularly the, I, I read a story about you visiting the Jerusalem Film School and you showed them a film about Janine and, again, blank faces. Yeah. How do you explain that? I mean, we see that in Australia as well. I didn't show them the film, which okay. is called Heart of Janine. Yeah. I mentioned you it. You mentioned it. Okay. And just to mention, this is a film about a Palestinian kid in the refugee camp who goes out to play one day because he's made a mistake and nobody's warned him that the Israeli army are there. So he goes out and he's got a a wooden replica gun. So they shot him dead, as they do. He's eight years old. But they could use bits of him, and his bits went all over Israel. 
and were used and his heart actually went to a super and orthodox right wing Israeli family in Tel Aviv American parents you know, to yeah. the kid and so I was suggesting when I went to the film school that this documentary is deeply moving I said how many of you have seen it and just asking the question the shutters were like <laughs> and suddenly it's exactly like the gig from being oh yeah look he's come to talk to us how lovely they went to not here absolute closed down and so the brainwashing that goes on 24-7 in Israel and has done since 1948 is supremely effective which is why you know I have so much admiration to my friend Gideon Levy and others within and the boycott from within uh, and you know breaking the silence and all those incredibly brave Israelis who speak out against the unspeakable violence of the occupation. There are many human rights issues in the world and you cover and talk about a lot of them. Climate change is an important issue, Tibet, these are big issues. But the truth is if you advocate publicly to say we should have action on climate change, you're not likely to be attacked of being a Nazi, no. unlikely. Palestine's different and you know this. So I guess my question really to you is why do you think advocating for Palestine brings from certain circles towards you and others so much hatred, smearing, libel and you've obviously chosen over years to make the decision to advocate amongst other issues for Palestine despite the fact that you're paying a price, at least rhetorically, that you're often smeared. Anyone can Google that very easily. So why do you think there is that difference and why do you think there is such a price to be paid and which is why so many people don't advocate for Palestine? Well, that's very interesting. I think that the people who drive the hatred, Sheldon Adelson, let's just pick our good old friend Sheldon out that. I've no idea what really what his background is. He's a I very prominent billionaire American who is a big funder of Israel causes. And his, and his money comes from gambling. casinos. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's a gambling mogul mm. or whatever. So I believe that, he, that Sheldon Adelson makes the huge and extremely basic mistake of conflating Zionist colonialism with Judaism and that he probably has a very deep attachment to his victimhood you know, to his Jewish victimhood, that he, he I'm sure, I know he's older than me, mm. so he probably remembers the Second World War, yeah. he probably, you know, and so the, the Holocaust and, you know, the Third Reich is probably there. So it may be that that attachment to the victimhood of that blocks out all capacity for rational thought mm. and feeling. So you become like a trapped wild animal and you will lash out at and try and destroy anything that you see as a potential threat. I am one of the things that Sheldon Adelson and all the rest of them from the, or the whole APAC mob and all of the kind of Zionist Israeli lobby in the United States, they attack. But it, it's a knee-jerk reaction. Unless, of course, 
they believe that they're chosen unless they believe that God A exists and B if there is a monotheistic being a superpower a superhuman being who controls everything that he has actually decided that they are very very special that they're exceptional and that they should be served by every other human being on the planet if they believe that then they can do anything anybody who believes themselves to be exceptional is a very dangerous critter this is the problem with where i live in the united states of america and the people there have been sold the idea that america is an exceptional country an exceptionally good country which is obviously non obviously complete nonsense it's deeply dangerous deeply divisive horrible horrible place in fact <laughs> they believe it's great we are the greatest country in the world no you're not you rank 38th in healthcare you know you're somewhere hovering between i don't mean to you know be insulting to people from Zaire but somewhere between you know Zaire and Borneo no you're not you're not you're really really bad at running the country yeah. except for the oligarchs who own everything and who've paid for all the politicians who do their nodding donkey thing in congress mm. so but sorry you, the, mm. the point you were making about about the lobby is mm. well taken but it's changing that's why this is so cool that's why i'm so happy to see you all here your you all you people in this room your efforts are not in vain and i'm seeing it in the united states and it's kind of barely perceptible on the surface because the mainstream media will not report it but i speak to lots of people and i hear it and certainly in the jewish community in the united states of america support for israel and its appalling colonialist policies and its racism and apartheid uh, the support for them is diminishing at a great rate particularly amongst the young which is why the shoulder navelsons of this world are pouring millions and millions and millions of dollars into trying to suggest that i'm a nazi we're doing all right this is good this is why i'm so happy to be here in this room with you guys here because this is a global effort and it is really beginning to gain some purchase and, and that makes me really happy you are listening to pink floyd icon roger waters who was speaking at the athenaeum theater in melbourne on the 9th of february he was with two activists from australia Randa Abdul Fattah and Anthony Lowenstein. One of the reasons why we are so excited about doing this with you here is because our government Australia is one of Israel's closest allies. We have a clear pro-Israeli anti-Palestinian voting pattern in the UN and it's out of touch with the majority of nations and in international law. We presented a red carpet to Netanyahu um and our prime minister and political leaders continuously stress that our close relationship with Israel is based on core shared values 
America, obviously, and Canada, other countries who strongly support Israel, and all these countries share a settler colonial identity. It's interesting to see the parallels between um, Australia and its treatment of Indigenous people and its contempt for their wishes to have Australia Day abolished and for us to recognise it as Invasion Day and the way that Palestinians who attempt to commemorate Independence Day as the Nakba are, are treated in Israel. Those parallels are really important, particularly me as an Australian-Palestinian, understanding that this comes from primarily a racist settler colonial identity. To what extent do you think that it is this kind of this identity um, that unites Western supporters of Israel? Completely. Mm. Completely. You know, I, I, I was very struck when I, when I arrived here again very mm. recently. And I, I wish I could remember the names of the people involved in this. It's not beautiful, it's horrific, but it's also a beautiful map of the massacres. I feel quite emotional even talking about it, mm. but the fact that the stories are beginning to be at least told, at least acknowledged in places of what colonialism actually is and was and still is and what it actually means, is deeply moving because from then and from Captain Cook until today, until the last 10 minutes, nobody wants to talk about that. Mm. Everything's fine, you know. We can beat the palms at cricket and that's all that matters, really. <laughs> well, that's how it feels. <laughs> so, yeah, but I'll tell you something else that's happening is I've just been in Canada. I did one of these in Vancouver at the end of October and it was great. Uh, and it was really enjoyable. But something else I did was uh, I went and sat in court for two days in Toronto because we've managed to move, I say we, I'm not really anything to do with it, I'm a supporter, we've ma managed to move a court case that was won in Ecuador on behalf of the indigenous people of the Ecuadorian rainforest against Chevron Corporation who bought Texaco. Texaco took oil out of the ground there in Ecuador from 1961 until 1990. They didn't do any of the uh, protocols that you're supposed to do so that you don't kill everybody. So they were just killing everybody. Mm. They lost a court case in Ecuador. They lost a uh, judgment for $9 billion and another $9 billion in punitive damages. And, uh, mm. and they said, we're not giving you a single cent. Where They moved all their assets out of Ecuador, like they do. But the case is now being heard in Canada where Chevron do have assets. And they've fought it with all legal men. The legal representatives of Chevron, after they'd lost the case in Ecuador, said, we're not paying you. We will fight this case until hell freezes over. And when hell freezes over, we will fight on the ice. This is talking to people, many, many thousands of whom have contracted cancer, their children, are, you know, I mean, their lives have been mm. completely destroyed. The First Nation people, in Canada have picked up on this thing. They went, the two of them went, I'm, I'm going to remember the guy's name in a minute. He was in, he was in court with me in Toronto. They went to Ecuador and said, they've now said, whoa, hold on a minute, this isn't right. So there is a, a, a circle of indigenous people beginning to develop itself around the world so that the Aboriginal people here in the Maoris next door to you in New Zealand and all, and all of the indigenous Indian people in South America they're beginning to start to hold hands with each other and go hey this is a, a, 
your fight is my fight. Mm. And it comes back to something that I've said often in meetings like this, which is that, you know, Mike Pence can wander around checking things out in Deuteronomy. But I, and I, or many of us, can look at archaeology and paleontological evidence of who we are and where we're from. And all the evidence points to the probability that we're all African. Every one of us is African. All human beings are African, essentially. We're less than 100,000 years old. Homo sapiens is 70, 80, 90,000 years old, as far as we can know. No. But we're all brothers and sisters. Our DNA is so similar, but we can all be traced to our African origins. We're different shapes, sizes, colors, whatever, because of the vagaries of weather in the different parts that we went to when we left Africa, which was our... So I think that's a very important thing to, for, to cling to. And that's something we should be teaching our children. We shouldn't be teaching our children. You're an American, wave the flag. You know, you, you can be better at gymnastics than the Russians are, or whatever it is that they care about. All this talk about building walls on borders and, and uh, keeping dangerous refugees out of the country and so on. I know this happens here a lot. Well, you have to remember in Australia that you are a chip of the old block. Mm. Certainly this bloke, Turnbull is his name. And the old block is Margaret Thatcher. You know, and before Margaret Thatcher, Charles I. Mm. Or wherever, it goes back to the same divine right of kings notion that mm. somehow we're better than you are. So I'm hugely encouraged by the map of the massacres because it, it shows that we, at least to some extent, that we care about each other and about our histories. Let me ask you about Jerry Seinfeld, who is a comedian, fairly famous. For those who don't know, and I'm sure you do know this, uh, recently Jerry took his family to an illegal settlement in the West Bank and one of these kind of anti-terror fantasy camps where you basically go to a settlement and you can shoot guns. It's run by former Israeli soldiers and you kind of live this crazy fantasy of shooting Arabs and that makes you feel good, apparently. This happened recently. There was a few stories in the press and then disappears. There's no controversy, there's no attack, his career doesn't end. Can you imagine if you or someone like Seinfeld went to a Hamas training camp or Hezbollah, it'd be a bit different. Now, the reason I ask you this is explain to people why, and you live in the US, I don't know if you know him particularly, but you'd know some people maybe who have those kinds of views who are that famous. Why is there this double standard and how does someone like him get away with that? Either you care about, I said this a few minutes ago about the Enlightenment, either you care about discourse, either you care about the capacity human beings have to talk to one another and to study history and to... Or you're a Nazi. Seinfeld's obviously a Nazi. They're all over. Aerosmith went to these training camps. It's a, a pop group. You know, what are they doing? What, is, what are they thinking Do you know about? Them? No, of course not. No, I no, ran no. into Steve Tyler in a sushi restaurant in L.A. about six months ago. And he leapt up from his table. I thought, who is a little old lady coming up? 
Is that the surgery or that's just his Because he, he had his hair up like in a bun. And I thought, oh my God, there's a little old lady once knows God. That was Stephen Tyler. And you talked about Israel? No. Are you kidding? No. No, he was playing, you know, he was being deferential. But, yeah, I did see him once. In but there is no double standard, isn't there? I mean, people like that can go to these events. Yeah, well, but, but yeah, but it's like, yeah, of course. And people can, people can cross the picket line and get away with it. You know, the Bon Jovis of this. Well, oh, Madonna, Bon Jovi. You could, some of them I have a certain amount of respect for. Elton John went and played in Sun City about 500 times when everyone else in the world was anti-apartheid and saying, you can't go and play in Sun City. Mm. He went, yeah, I can. You know, I'm the Queen Mum. Or whatever it was that he said. <laughs> and, and you kind of go, well, he's just dopey. You know, this is... And, and also, he obviously doesn't give a fuck about anybody else. Except the lesbian, gay, whatever, whatever community, which he claims to care about. And he does seem to, he will make videos of, you know, protecting his one little area of people who might be having violence done to him. But he seems blind to, well, we're all human and some people are human in different ways yeah. than others are. <laughs> wrote to John Bon Jovi and I sent him a, I sent him a thing saying, you are going to entertain the people who shot the feet of Palestinian footballers. Yeah. There were two of them. I sent the same letter to those two Brazilian guys who went. Caetano, some, I can't remember their names now. And in fact, when they came back, one of them said he would never go again. He had visited the occupied territories mm. and saw what was going on. He completely regretted having gone. I think. Yeah, there, there's two kids, 18-year-olds, They'd been to the local uh, football stadium pitch to train, dreamed of playing at some point for Palestine, and some IDF soldiers decided to shoot. They shot one kid seven times in one foot and four yeah. times in the other. So obviously they'll never play soccer, but they'll, and they'll never walk again. Yeah. Never. But nobody... Uh, anyway, we could go on telling horror stories mm -hmm. all night. It, it brings me to, um, the, again, this issue of the blind, sort of the blind spot. So given your human rights activism over the years and your progressive views, you'd move in circles of people with like-minded politics, particularly um, guessing around anti-armament um, you know, movement and the armament industry. And, you know, Palestinians have this uh, catchphrase of meeting people who are peps, progressive, except Palestine. So they're peps. And, um, you know, I come across it time and time again, people who are progressive on all issues, except when it comes to the issue of Palestinians. Yeah. Again, for example, people who are anti-war, anti-armament industry, and then ignore the fact that Israel is deeply involved in exporting arms to rogue nations. We, Australia, recently, just very recently, signed a memorandum of understanding to have a defence cooperation, um, a recent arms deal last month with India, just overlooking all of that. So, in your own circles, have you come across these progressive except Palestine types and how do you navigate those conversations? I didn't hear all of that. <laughs> but we are caught in a bind, all of us. And the bind is that there is something called the media and almost all of it is mainstream and it is all telling the same false narrative because it's only there to sell us whatever they want to sell us. Mm. 
it, it, it's there to buoy up the idea that consuming is the important thing in life and that the truth or reality or ideas or history or literature or whatever it might be that you might be interested in if you're one of the people who's interested in things people have been bombarded with you know what funnily enough what Trump is complaining about the whole fake news thing well yeah he's right they are and, and unfortunately Rupert Murdoch thank you by the way for exporting that arsehole to the rest of the world <laughs> you can you, they, I know they've, they, they, they've by and large got the whole information thing yeah. tied up with a bow you know and so that can be presented to the point one or point not not one of one percent of the population of the globe who own everything and who seem content to play with it like a bauble at the cost of amazing misery for most of the people alive I don't know one of my heroines lives here in Melbourne she has a blog she's called Caitlin Johnson she tells the truth on her blog and nobody's heard of her of course you know there are network I know you guys in here you must know this there are networks of people where so you can find out what's really going on uh, in the world if still with the net though this is one of the most serious things that we should all be talking about now is that they figured it out now they Jerry Seinfeld and Mark Zuckerberg and whoever those two dumb kids who own Google are yeah. they figured out that they want it to go on like this they believe that the bullshit about American exceptionalism so they're changing all the algorithms in order to try and remove anything that is left-wing anti-war socialist blah, blah, from the internet mm. and they are succeeding Alternet which is one of the sites that I support their traffic via Google search has gone down 65% since last April that is because Google employed 10,000 people to change the way the search engine works to silence the other voice so it is very scary which is why this kind of grassroots human beings talking to one another about these things is so desperately important probably the most prominent person in the world who advocates for BDS boycott divestment sanction there are many others but you often write to artists cultural figures musicians to encourage them not to play in Israel to abide by the Palestinian call for boycott tell us a little bit about how that process works obviously there are some musicians who go along with this there are some Nick Cave recently Radiohead who very prominently were very angry about even being dared to ask to not play yeah tell us a little bit about that process you I guess write people letters I presume privately or sometimes publicly and then do you sometimes speak to these people tell us a little bit about how that process works I do it both ways usually I write to them privately first mm -hmm. I get an email address and yeah. write or whatever it's a fascinating situation that we're in because you'd think it would be it's, it's so simple mm -hmm. how, how can you not support this movement you support I wrote to um, what's his face little Stephen Stephen Van Zandt he's one of the East Street band he produced We Will Not Play in Sun City with you know Mick out there on the street with David Bowie and all that and doing all their support for the thing jigging about which was lovely and great and everything 
I wrote to him and said, hey Steve, not that I knew him, but I, don't you think it's about time we did one of these about Palestine? Because the situation there is, you know, appalling and there's... And apostate and racism and blah, blah, blah. It's exactly the same situation as it was in South Africa. It's worse, actually, than it was in South Africa. He wrote me a letter back and he said, um, I think uh, the situation in Israel-Palestine is much more complicated oh. than the blah, 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 blah. But he said, but he said, and also, and then it turned into a threat. He said, I think you should be very careful what you do and what you say because your career could be over. This guy in his bloody, you know, char lady's hat that he wears or whatever, is threatening me. I mean, how weird is that? He did say, however, uh, uh, that he would love to have lunch, that he admired my courage and would love, love to have lunch. So I wrote him back and said, what about next Friday? And I, that was four years ago. I never... <laughs> So last year when Nick Cave and Radiohead, who were two very prominent artists who didn't just play in Israel but gave public statements and press conferences being outraged to even be asked yeah. to potentially boycott, what is your sense of, did you have dialogue with them? What's your sense of why they took no, that No, they won't speak to me. They won't speak to me. Tom York said that Ken Loach and I were throwing mud at him from... No, we weren't. We, were both, we both tried to engage in a conversation. I had a long email exchange with Tom York. And at the end about of it, this, he said, that's it, I'm giving up the music business. You finally convinced me. And he was just being sarcastic. At least have a conversation. He's just a self-obsessed, narcissistic, drippy little prick. <laughs> anyway, and, and your bloke... Cave, I mean, give me a break. <laughs> He's saying that his freedom of speech was being infringed. It doesn't even, it doesn't deserve an answer. Did, you have, did you have contact with him or? With Nick Cave. With Nick Cave. Well, we, only, only I, I was co-signatory of all the letters that we all sent him or whatever. I, I, never, I didn't speak to him personally. I don't want to speak to him. I just think it's so to bring that up and say, oh, you know, I'm a musician, I just want to play my music. I don't want Roger Waters bullying me. <laughs> what? They're shooting the fucking feet of 18-year-olds who want to play soccer. Don't talk to me about your freedom of speech. So as a um, Palestinian in the diaspora, I support BDS, or the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement. But my first reason is not because it is non-violent or inspired by the struggle against South African apartheid or even that it's effective. I support it because I respect the agency and self-determination of Palestinians and the fact that a critical mass from civil society called out to the global community to support that strategy. And what I admire most about your support for BDS is that you have privileged the agency and voice of Palestinians. Do you think that a lot of the silencing and condemning of BDS is about dictating to people how they should resist and fight their oppression? And we see this time and time again when power tells people to, you know, just put up with gradual emancipation or just um, water down your resistance, tone down your um, anger. Do you think that this is part of the way of controlling the way victims of oppression are allowed to resist? Yeah, of course it is. It's time-wasting. They're time-wasting. The Israelis have been time-wasting since 1948. 
They pretended that they were going to go along with the UN mandate that there should be two states. If they were having a state, that there should be a Palestinian state as well. 194, I believe, is the original uh, resolution. Or is that the right of return? I'm, I'm kind of bad with numbers. But they never had any intention of not taking over the whole thing. From 1948 on, they have been systematically making life on the earth that is Palestine intolerable for the indigenous people in an attempt to drive them into neighboring countries, into refugee camps, so that they can take over the whole. At least now, they're sort of admitting it because it was so obvious for so many years. But, but it's almost impossible for Netanyahu now to say the same thing again and again without kind of tittering up his sleeve. Yeah. You know, oh, what we really want is a two-state solution, but we can't find anyone on the other side who is not an animal who we could talk to. Yeah. You know, are you kidding me? We all know, anybody who's done the reading, anybody who's read any of the history, anybody who's read anything that isn't American slash Israeli propaganda knows that there were umpteen occasions between 1948 and particularly 67. That's what, um, you know, Miko Paled's whole shtick is about when he wrote The General's Son. This is a book, you know, this guy activist, Miko, and his father was a general in the, in the general staff and then, who went to the cabinet after 67 and said, now is the moment. On these borders, you know, on the 67 borders, they will accept a thing. They're screwed. We've defeated them completely. Now is the time to make peace. And they laughed at him. They said, are you crazy? We're never going to make peace with them. It's ours. None of this is a huge surprise. What may turn out to be a huge surprise is if we win. And if the Palestinians do get rights... If we, all of us, manage to persuade others, and, enough, and, it, and it's not I'm, not, I'm not sort of being maniacal about this. This is spreading. People in general around the world sit and they're look, looking at this stuff and they're going, yeah, this is wrong. It's wrong because it's, it's very e easy to look at it and go, why do these people have rights and these people don't? That can't be right. That's not what we all believe in. So we could win this. We could win it. Or the Palestinians could win it. And maybe that could, it could spread to other places, you know, to the Rohingyans or other people who are being treated so abominably in other parts of the world. And then maybe we can, you know, persuade the powers that be in the United States of America that, no, you, you, you can't have the whole world as, you know, as a little empire. You have been listening to an edited version of An Evening at the Athenaeum Theatre in Melbourne on the 9th of February. It was organised by APAN, Australian Palestine, Palestine Advocacy Network, and it featured Pink Floyd icon Roger Waters speaking with Palestinian-Australian activist and author Randa Abel Fatah and Jewish Australian author and activist, Angie Lowenstein, as I said, speaking with Roger Waters, Pink Floyd icon. He was in Australia to performing concerts and gave up his time for, I'm pretty sure it was a packed audience at the Athenaeum Theatre last month. 
that's about all I have for the program today, but I can't go without just asking anyone who has not yet got a Palestinian staff, they are absolutely gorgeous, the new ones. 3CR are selling Kafia Palestinian staffs in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And that's about it for me for today. Coming up in a couple of minutes' time is Gumbo Law, but I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. But do stay tuned for Dumbo Law. Bye for now. <laughs>